Keep your Bibles right where they are, by the way. Uh, 246 through 49 of Daniel will be our text for this morning. We will be, uh, Lord willing here, wrapping up chapter 2 and our five-part mini-series within the broader series of the book of Daniel, our little mini-series based on chapter 2 called Dreams, Death, and Deliverance. Uh, so far, we have looked at, at the beginning of the chapter, we looked at the predicament, and then, and then we looked at the prayer, and then we looked at the plan, and then last Sunday, we looked at the prediction, uh, and that was Daniel giving Nebuchadnezzar his dream, describing it, and giving him the interpretation of it. This morning, we're going to look at the promotion, the promotion. At this point in the historical narrative... Daniel and his buddies had just finished describing and interpreting the king's mysterious dream before the king in the king's court or at the king's court. And that prediction or that dream had to do with earthly kingdoms and how they will be shattered and replaced by the Lord Jesus when he returns in power and in glory to establish his millennial kingdom, which will go on and on and on. Now, before discovering how the king responded to Daniel's prediction, this amazing prediction. I think we need to pray and and just before we enter into this time of studying God's word, because that's what we're going to look at, Nebuchadnezzar's response. But let's just pray one more time before we do that. Father, I just pray that that you would send your spirit and power today. Uh, The last thing that I want to be a part of is a lecture uh, or just giving a historical overview of past events Lord, this is the very Word of God that we're dealing with here. And within the Word of God, there is authority, objective truth, there is power. And we beg of you to send the Holy Spirit to work His power, to apply the power of God's Word to our lives. uh, To make us a little bit more like Jesus. Or if there'd be any in this room who have yet to come to know Christ in a saving way, that you would move in power to save them And and Lord, we do ask that you would be glorified through this time uh, and and through everything that we do in our lives, especially during this time of worship. And so we yield ourselves to you, we humble ourselves before your throne, and we ask that you would teach us, good teacher, and send the power and spirit and be glorified in all that is said here. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's take a look at verse 46, because we're just going to continue to work each line of this chapter. Verse 46, look at that with me. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar, so this is his response, right? Daniel predicts, and here's what he does. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. So Nebuchadnezzar, what we see here is Nebuchadnezzar was literally so blown away by Daniel's description and interpretation. It, it, to me, it looks like he attempted to worship Daniel. All of the elements of worship are represented in that verse. And, and I just thought, okay, so this guy clearly doesn't understand or get what's actually happening here. And that would be normative. But it looks like he's attempting to worship Daniel, right? He did three worshipful things. First, he fell upon his face. 
The Bible calls this prostration, uh, and it means to humbly bow. So he humbly bowed himself. He fell prostrate, if you will. And that's certainly an act of worship in some sense. Second, he paid homage. Now, this has to do with honoring someone through praising their name and praising their deeds or gifts or abilities. So basically, when he falls upon his face, he's now praising Daniel. Daniel, you really are this guy. You are this. You are that. Your name is high and lifted up. He's sort of just exalting Daniel, if you will. So he falls and he exalts him. Sounds like worship. Third, he commanded, and this is the kicker, third, he commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Okay, so in Aramaic, which is the section was written in, the Aramaic to Hebrew translation, offering refers to meat. So the offering here is meat. And then incense obviously refers to fragrance. So the king commanded that meat and incense be burned in honor or in homage of Daniel. That sounds like worship to me. I mean, that's just worship, right? Now, here's the question that comes to mind. Because we've already established who Daniel is or was, a righteous man, a godly man, Throughout chapter 2, he's doing all that he can to direct Nebuchadnezzar's attention to the God of heaven, which is a God that Nebuchadnezzar did not know. Nebuchadnezzar worshipped astral gods, planets, the moon, and these sorts of things. The whole time we've been watching Daniel, he's been telling Nebuchadnezzar, look, I'm gonna, the, the God of heaven who reveals mysteries gave the answer to me, and I'm going to give it to you, but I want to make sure that you understand it came from him and not from me. So he's done all that he can to deter the king away from maybe worshiping him or celebrating him or praising him. He wanted all the attention and glory to go to the God of heaven, right? So we know his character, we know his integrity, we know how he thinks. So that begs the question, if the king was attempting to worship him by bowing and having things maybe slaughtered and burned and all of this stuff, why did this, why didn't, I should say, this righteous man not stop him? Why didn't he stop him? Why didn't he try to, why didn't he say, hold on, king? Uh, Others throughout scripture, when they, uh, found themselves in the presence of maybe an angelic being, would, you know, bow, it says in Revelation, you know, John just started bowing, kind of worshiping in front of an angel, and the angel says, hey, 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 don't worship me. In fact, I, I read in Genesis uh, this last week that uh, three angels, before they went and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, came and visited, uh, visited Abraham, and Abraham bowed before all three of them, and then had his wife throw down a three-course meal. And he didn't stop them in any way, which is interesting. But why, if this is a righteous guy, why did he not stop him? Because it certainly looks like Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to worship him. Well, I think the reason why he didn't try to stop him, or he didn't stop him, was because at the same time that Nebuchadnezzar was bowing and shouting and calling out for all of these other things to be done, he was also confessing some very important truths about the God of heaven at the exact same time. It wasn't a sequence of things that happened here. It was all happening at the same time. He's shouting these things about Daniel. He's shouting these things about God. He's just completely overwhelmed. So I don't think that Daniel saw him as, this guy's trying to bow at me and worship me. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, No wonder Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel when his dream was revealed and interpreted. In his insecurity and instability... 
It was all he could do as he confessed the greatness of Daniel's God. So the way that we want to look at this isn't that he bowed and did this and did this. He was doing it all at the same time, and Daniel was just like, whoa, look at this dude. Now let's take a look at the king's confession in verse 47. Okay, so these, these are the things that the king is also saying. He's also saying these things as he's bowing and, and sort of worshiping God in his own way, if you will. And, of course, there was great ignorance there. He didn't understand how this stuff works. He had his own mode of religion. But look at this confession. This is what convinced Daniel that Daniel, you know, I'm not being worshipped. He's trying to worship my God. 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods. And Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Verse 47 shows us who Nebuchadnezzar was actually trying to worship, not Daniel, but Daniel's God. Now let's dissect his confession a little bit. It contains three affirmations. He began by saying, before we even get to the affirmations, he began by saying, truly... This was his way of saying, Daniel, I'm telling you the truth. I mean this. This is accurate. This is a truthful statement. I'm telling you the truth. He begins by saying, truly. And then he said, your God is God of gods. Nebuchadnezzar affirmed what Daniel had been saying all along up to this point, that his God, the God of heaven, Yahweh, is higher than all other gods, including Nebuchadnezzar's astral gods, as if there were such things. The king literally placed Daniel's God above his astral deities with this statement. Your God, capital G, is the God of gods, lowercase g. So he's affirming what Daniel has been saying all along. The prediction had that kind of impact on him. No one else could predict his dream or describe it. And yet Daniel did, and Daniel had done a really good job of pointing to his God. And here he's just, your God is obviously the God over all other gods. Now, I don't think that the king was aware of what he was actually doing when he said this, but he was quoting Deuteronomy 10, 17, which says, the Lord your God is God of gods. Interesting. He also called Daniel's God Lord of Kings. Lord of Kings. Typically in Scripture, when we think of someone who is a Lord, or we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, we think of the one who is sovereignly over others. He is, the, uh, in, in the little L Lord case, a Lord over a particular territory or something. In the case of the Lord Jesus, he is the Lord over all creation. And he calls him Lord of Kings here. Lord of Kings, and there's a capital L hanging on the front of that puppy. Lord of Kings has to do with the sovereignty uh, of Daniel's God over kings and kingdoms. So this shows that Nebuchadnezzar affirmed what Daniel said back in verses 37 and 38, where he told the king that the God of heaven was the one who had given Nebuchadnezzar his throne and dominion or rule. So here, the king literally placed Daniel's God, the God of heaven, the God of gods, above his own kingship, above his own throne. Okay, so he's saying, 
Your God is higher than my gods, and your God is the Lord over all kings and over all kingdoms, as you have said. I agree with what you have been stating. And then the third affirmation, he called Daniel's God a revealer of mysteries. Daniel began his presentation back in verses 27 and 28 by stating that no wise man, right, no Chaldean, no diviner, none of those guys, no wise man could describe and interpret the king's dream and that only the God of heaven could do so because he alone reveals mysteries. That's Daniel's statement. Something like that, that's a paraphrase. Nebuchadnezzar here affirmed Daniel's opening remarks by confessing that Daniel's God is the or a revealer of mysteries. So what we see here is a threefold affirmation over everything that Daniel's been saying so far. The king is in a, in a total agreement. He gets the prediction and he's like, you're right, your God is all of the things that you've been saying. So again, he affirmed three things in his confession Daniel's God is above all gods, Daniel's God is above all kings, and Daniel's God is a revealer of mysteries. So I, I think that we can deduce, or I think that we can pull out of this text who Nebuchadnezzar was actually trying to worship. Might have been an awkward type of worship at first, because he's bowing before a guy and having stuff killed in his name and honor or whatever. I don't know how it played out, but in any case, he's certainly trying to worship Yahweh. But it is important to note that there is something missing in his confession. And this is something that I think Daniel was after. And that is the confession of sin. We don't see anything like that here. We just see these big statements about who God actually is. But we don't see any contrition or repentance or Psalm 51-ish kind of response from Nebuchadnezzar. He just makes some big awesome statements. Nebuchadnezzar was undoubtedly awestruck by Daniel's God, but he was still oblivious to his own sin and need of a Savior. There are many Nebuchadnezzars in the visible church today. They bow, they praise, and they say nice things about God but they do not see themselves as sinners who need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They do not do as Daniel and his buddies did in verse 18, seek the Lord for mercy. They are religious people, but they are not the Lord's people. There's a difference. There certainly can be. Why? Because they have not yet confessed their sins before God. They have not yet repented of their self-sufficiency in ways. They have not yet put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their righteousness, for their salvation. Am I describing you, dear friend? There are many Nebuchadnezzar's in the church today, in the visible church, not in the true church, but in this thing that we call church every Sunday where all sorts of people show up. There are many here who are much like Nebuchadnezzar. 
And there are many who are not, who have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, who understand what he came to do for them and understand their sinfulness and their need of a Savior. Now let's take a look at what the king did next in 48. Verse 48. Then the king, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. The king made good on his promise to reward the teller and interpreter of his dream. Right back in verse 6, he said, whoever can tell it to me, I'm going to hook him up. And he made good on that promise, didn't he? He did four things for Daniel, we see here. First, he gave him high honors. High honors means to exalt Okay, it means to lift up, to raise up. The king made Daniel, we, we might say that the king made Daniel great among all of the people of his kingdom, of Babylon. So he gave him these high honors, he exalted him up, he raised him up. It's as if he put him on a pedestal and put a spotlight on him. This guy's the man. Second, he gave him many great gifts. He gave him many great gifts. These were royal gifts. Royal gifts were considered great because they were given directly from a king and obviously highly valuable. Maybe like gold, maybe like silver, who knows? Doesn't say because that's not the point, but he did hook him up. Third, he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Now here's where we see the promotion. This is the promotion. Daniel was promoted to a high position in the king's government. He was made a satrap. S-A-T-R-A-P. I always say satrap, but that's not how it's pronounced. He was made a satrap. Satrap is a, is a Persian phrase or term that refers to a leader over a province or over a territory Maybe similar to like a governor over a state or maybe like a county supervisor or something of that nature. Now Babylon was divided into provinces. I'm talking about the whole kingdom of Babylon, the far-reaching massive kingdom of Babylon. It was divided into provinces or maybe what we would call counties. Each province had a satrap who governed over that province. Maybe it had eight provinces and eight satraps. The key province in the kingdom of Babylon was actually called the province of Babylon. Babylon's capital, which is Babylon City, and the king's royal court were located within this province, the province of Babylon. And maybe that's why it was the key province, or the most significant. It had the capital city, it had the king's royal court, it was the hub. Daniel was made satrap over this province. Now this is absolutely extraordinary that he was promoted to this position. Outsiders were never, ever installed as satraps in a kingdom like this. Never. Never. 
Only the highest, in terms of speaking of Babylon, only the highest Chaldean nobility with the right bloodline and the right pedigree were awarded such positions. Daniel's a Jew. He, he, he is considered by Nebuchadnezzar and pretty much every other race throughout the world to be inferior, an inferior race. And here he's exalted to satrap. For a Jew, and not only is he a Jew, he's a Jew from the captivity. He's a prisoner, if you will. He's an exile. For a Jew from the captivity to be so honored was unprecedented. And it shows how deeply his intelligence and integrity had impressed the king, right? Fourth thing we see is he made him the chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now this makes total sense if you just apply logic. Since Daniel had so decisively proved himself a prophet with access to the great God he worshipped, it was only logical for Nebuchadnezzar to put him in charge of all the wise men, right? Okay, this guy can do what these other dudes can't do. He's now the manager. Look at it that way. From this moment forward, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, not speaking of that race of people, but speaking of the chief astrologers, they were to report to him. He was their boss. He became their boss, their supervisor. Now, does any of this sound familiar? Several weeks ago, I told you that this story mirrors Genesis 41. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, had a mysterious dream he couldn't understand. And when a Jew named Joseph interpreted, and he was a prisoner at the same time, he wasn't in exile, but he was like a prisoner, Joseph, this Jewish man Joseph, interpreted for him this dream. He was the only one in, the entire, in Egypt that could do it. And this is how Pharaoh responded when Joseph did this for him. It says, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God, capital G, has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent <laughs> or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and all my people will take orders from you. This is a mirror here. We're seeing the same thing play out in Daniel 2. This is the kind of honor and rank Nebuchadnezzar bestowed upon Daniel. Now, I want to talk to you for a moment about the sovereignty and providence of God. Again, this is not going off in another direction because it's, 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 it fits here. And it's, it's actually what's playing out in the meta, at the meta larger level here. Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel because Daniel proved to be a powerful prophet who could benefit the king and his kingdom, right? There's no doubt. But God promoted Daniel for purposes yet to be discovered. And this is where we talk about the sovereignty and providence of God. Nebuchadnezzar, a few years later, would go on to invade Jerusalem two more times. In 597 and in 586 B.C. These invasions 
resulted in the total removal and relocation of God's people to Babylon. 2 Kings 24.14 says, 10,000 Judeans were exiled to Babylon during the second invasion. 10,000 during the second sweep. The Bible does not say specifically how many were exiled during the third invasion, but it does make clear that the rest of the Judean people, God's people, those who lived in Jerusalem, the rest of them were carried off to Babylon. We're talking about thousands and thousands and even tens of thousands of Judeans flooding into Babylon. I'm guessing that most of them did not speak Chaldee, and most of them did not understand Chaldean or Babylonian culture. What would you need to be able to effectively communicate with and manage a group of foreigners of this magnitude? You would need a liaison. You would need a mediator who understood Judean culture and Babylonian culture. You would need Daniel, wouldn't you? So what am I suggesting? God promoted Daniel to the high position of satrap over the province of Babylon so he could serve as mediator between God's exiled people and King Nebuchadnezzar. That's the providence of God. That, my friends, is the sovereignty of God at work. Nebuchadnezzar was doing things that he thought was right, but God was behind the scenes actually working this whole angle. Even though God's people had fallen into sin and idolatry, and even though they were being being disciplined by being carted off for 70 years, God still loved His people and made sure that there were people in place as they're coming to care for them, to take care of them. Why? Because a good father disciplines his children, but he doesn't abandon them. He was put in place to be a mediator. Why do you think that he went off to Nebuchadnezzar's Chaldean school for three years and so did his pals? Do you think that it was entirely so they could just learn the language because it was important for their role as they served the king? Or do you think it was because that would help them be a mediator between the king and understand the culture and, 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 and therefore he could help his own people as they're coming into the city and coming into the province, help them understand the culture. God's just threading this whole thing together, guys. We have a sovereign God who's in control. You, you think that you got promoted to manager at this store or this or that just because that the boss liked you? You, you think that you think that you, that, you, uh, uh, that you went into public office or you're doing what you're doing? You're in some kind of a position of influence just because you, you had the right papers on your wall? You had the right degrees? Maybe you have more degrees than Fahrenheit. You're a genius. I don't know. Well, let's not disconnect the sovereign providential God from working out all events past, present, and future because he's in charge of all of it. And we see that so clearly here in the text. I love it. I love the Word of God. Don't you love it? It's just amazing. You just got to look. You got to dig into it or you miss this stuff. Now let's take a look at how Daniel responded to the rewards and promotion coming from the king. Look at verse 49. 
This is just another example of, of Daniel's heart, his integrity, his character. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. While Daniel was being showered with praises and promotions, he did not forget about his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He didn't forget about them. Boy, he was in the limelight. He had the spotlight on him. He was just lifted up and exalted to a super high position. There were only a few of those positions in this kingdom. And, and I tell you what, if I was in his shoes, I'd probably said, who are those guys? Who are those peasants standing over there? So quickly we forget about those around us. Oh, he didn't forget about them at all. In fact, I think he was thinking more about them than he was himself. He didn't ask the king to be promoted to satrap or any of those things. The first thing he does, man, is he doesn't say, Thank you, king. Thank you, O gracious king, for exalting me and doing this. He says, Hey, I've got some buddies over here. Let's not leave them out. He requested that the king promote them as well. And he graciously granted his request. Nebuchadnezzar put them over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Let's think providentially in terms of God's sovereignty again. Now Daniel can't be the only person who ministers to God's people while they're in the land. Especially if there's thousands and thousands. You can't have one pastor at a church that's a large church. You have to have a lot of shepherds there. Think in terms of that. These men were appointed because... Daniel asked for them to be appointed, but God was the one appointing them that they might assist Daniel in this great endeavor to care for God's people while they're in this foreign land. I think he made them counselors. It doesn't say here, but if you just forward over to chapter 3, verse 2, you see a whole list of different types of positions and leadership positions, and we'll get to that probably next week, but you see a list of them there. Satraps, counselors... I think they were counselors. Now, there's an important principle here that we don't want to miss. Last week, we learned that the kingdoms of this world will be replaced by the kingdom of God when the Lord Jesus returns, as it says in the prediction, the stone who comes and crushes that statue. This is our hope, right? The return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, the second advent. This is our hope. We're waiting for Him to come back to subdue the nations, to establish His millennial reign and throne. It'll go on and on and on. This is our hope. This is what we're waiting for. In the meantime, I, I preached this stuff last week, and in the meantime, I told you that we should what? What do we do in the meantime while we're waiting? We should be at peace. We should pursue righteousness. We should walk humbly. We should make our God known, evangelism. And we should be ready and watchful for the Lord's return. Verses 48 and 49 reveal something else that we should be doing. It's not as clear. It's a little hidden, but it's there. And what is that? Seeking the good of our community. Daniel and his buddies did not isolate themselves from the kingdom of this world as they waited for God to establish.
establish his kingdom. Rather, they poured themselves into seeking the welfare of their temporary home in Babylon. This is massively important that we understand this. This attitude of seeking the peace of their present city, even though the city was sinful, even though though the city was wayward, this attitude of seeking the peace of their present city, even though it was not their home and certainly not yet the city of God by any means, is exactly the attitude that the prophet Jeremiah urged the exiles in Babylon to adopt when he wrote to them. He said, build houses. He's talking about the exiles while they're in Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. And he says this in verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Jeremiah 29, 5-7. You see, we need to follow the example of Daniel and his buddies. They didn't disconnect. They didn't, you know, divorce themselves from the community around them, from the world around them as they waited as they anticipated the coming kingdom of God. They didn't disconnect. They didn't divorce themselves from it. They didn't hide. They didn't, they didn't buy a hilltop and store ammo and store food. I'm just waiting for him to come back. Well, I can't go out there. It's tainted. I can't do anything. i got to wait for the Lord. Well, that's not at all what they did. They sought to bless their community through their positions. You see, it wasn't just about the Lord's people coming into Babylon. It was also about the welfare of everyone around them. Over the years, I've I've met Christians on two sides. Rarely do I find one who's in the middle. They're usually on either side, one or the other. Some have their eyes fixed on the return of Christ so intently that they are literally of no earthly use at all. None. They disconnect from the world around them. They say, the world is tainted. I'm going to store food, buy ammo, camp out for Jesus. And that's just awkward and weird. I own guns. I like buying ammo. But I'm not waiting for Armageddon. I'm not even going to be part of it. They just, I can't be a part of this thing around here. It's just horrible. It's evil. It's wicked. We get it. So I'm just going to camp out in my little safety zone, in my bubble. Believers who do this need to be reminded that if God intended our attention, our, our, if He intended our attention to be exclusively focused on Him right now, He would take us with Him immediately where we could fulfill that purpose far more adequately. The fact that he has not chosen to just zoom us out of here when he saves us suggests that he has earthly work for us to complete in the meantime. It's called Matthew 28. Go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded, and don't forget I'll be with you till the end of time. 
God does have work for us to do now, and it's not about building a little fortress or a superstructure where we can hide out and be safe. He has work for us to do out in the communities. We therefore need to take seriously our duty to pursue the blessing of the earthly communities in which we find ourselves. So that's one group. They just totally disconnect and hide, and they're of no earthly use. Others are so busy pursuing programs of earthly transformation for Christ that they have lost sight of the heavenly goal. So they're the exact opposite. They are busy polishing the statue instead of looking for the stone. They're just enamored and in, in, in wrapped up in doing kingdom-esque kinds of things on this side of glory. And that's all they think. i got to do this. i got to do this. I love Modesto's coming. i got to plant those flowers. It's all they think about is how can I go out and build the kingdom? In fact, that's, their, that's, what, they're, that's what they cry all the time. We're building the kingdom. We're building the kingdom. We're building the kingdom. The funny thing about Scripture is it doesn't say we're building a kingdom. It says we receive one. You're not building a kingdom by serving the Lord right now. The kingdom comes when the king comes. Sure, it started. It has begun in some sense. And the church kind of mirrors that in a sense. The fellowship of believers. These things will be represented in the kingdom of Christ when he comes. But we're receiving a kingdom. Oh, we're building the kingdom. I'm going to go out. What are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm serving over here. We're building the kingdom of God. We're building the kingdom of God. We're building the kingdom of God. Believers who do this need to be encouraged to remember that Whatever improvements we may legitimately make in our society, we are still looking for the establishment of a kingdom which is heavenly and will not be here in fullness until Christ returns. So my encouragement to you, my exhortation to you is avoid either side and ride the middle. Stay in the middle like Daniel and his buddies did. Eagerly eagerly anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus, the coming of the kingdom of God, and seek to bless the world around you. That's the middle. Don't do one or the other. Do both. We anticipate Him coming. We anticipate the kingdom of God. We're looking forward to that day. We sang about it earlier. It's a glorious day. We're waiting Jesus, you can come back. You can come back right now and you can put the application on this sermon. I don't need to keep talking. You don't need me. We're waiting for that. And what do we do in the meantime? We serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. We serve the community around us. We seek to bless. We need to live out that Jeremiah passage. We are exiles in a sense. We are foreigners here. We are, as Peter said, aliens and strangers This world is not our home. These bodies are tents. We're here for a moment. We're here for a glimpse. What does it say in Scripture? Life is a vapor. And so, what do we do? We press on. We live out the faith. We keep, you know, making a little bit of progress forward and we serve those around us and we make Christ known. There's nothing wrong with love Modesto. If you go out and serve your neighbors, that's a wonderful thing. I don't mean to attack that. That's an opportunity for us to go out and live out Jeremiah in a sense with the exception of getting wives and all that. That would be really awkward, especially if you're married. Maybe it's not a good example. (laughs) 
maybe it is. Seek the welfare of the city. Do you seek the welfare of those around you? If you're a business owner, now you do in some sense because it's built in, right? You got to give them a paycheck and all that stuff, but do you care about them spiritually? Maybe you're a manager or an accountant somewhere, or you know, maybe you're a business owner. I don't know. Do you seek the welfare of those around you? How about your neighbors? We all live in neighborhoods with people around us. Uh, in mind, you've got to be packing. It's a little rough. It's packed sword. Hey, my neighbors need Jesus. You seek the welfare. Well, let me begin to uh, just tie it all together. Kind of start wrapping it up. Take a little time to do that. I want you to take a look at that last phrase of verse 49. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Chapter 2 began with Daniel under the sentence of death. And it ends with Daniel sitting in the king's court as a satrap over the province of Babylon. (laughs) This was a total reversal. A total flip. A total reversal. The Bible is filled with total reversal stories like we see here in Daniel 2. And each one, including Daniel 2, each one is meant to point us to something larger and more significant. The person and work of Jesus Christ. He performed the ultimate total reversal for people like us. We too were under the sentence of death, like Daniel. But Jesus reversed the effects and impact of sin through his bloody sacrifice on the cross, and he destroyed death once and for all through his resurrection. Through Christ, we literally pass from death to life. 1 John 3.14. The question is, how do we experience this total reversal? How do we receive it if we have yet to do so? Well, does not come to us through being a good person because there are no good people. I know. I don't need you to confirm that with me. I just look in the mirror. I just search my own thoughts. There's nothing good here. If Christ is here, that's what's good. If he's not, there's nothing. There's nothing tangibly good to hang on to. It does not come through being a good person. And and that is the clear teachings of this world. And somehow you can earn God's favor or salvation or 
something from him through being good. You know, at the end of time, he'll break out the scales and he'll weigh your good deeds versus your bad deeds. And if these ones are higher, then you're okay. Peter, let him in. That's Every other religion teaches that. Every religion, less Christ, less Christianity teaches that. So it does not come through being a good person. It does not come through religion. And I do not mean the kind of religion that James speaks about where you care for widows and orphans. But I speak of the kind of religion where you try to earn your way. does not come through bowing, praising, or saying nice things about God like Nebuchadnezzar? How then, Ephesians 2.8 says, it comes to us by grace through faith. And the Scripture also teaches that both grace and faith are gifts from God. They're divine gifts. If you have the gifts of grace and faith, rejoice. Thank God. Praise Him. Live for Him by following the example of Daniel and his buddies. Eagerly anticipate the coming of the kingdom of God and seek to bless the world around you. Pursue righteousness, peace. These things. Bear the fruits of the Spirit. May the Lord produce a a great harvest in and through your life. And yet if you do not have the gifts of grace and faith, but for whatever reason, maybe even for the first time ever, you kind of want them, then I would say that the grace of God is already at work in your life. You're not coming up with that desire on your own, friend. Well, I'm interested in this grace and faith and and I'm interested in this kingdom that's coming and and I certainly have lived my life like Nebuchadnezzar and I don't want to remain that way. I want it to be authentic and real. That is the work of the Spirit and the applying of grace in your life. What would your next steps be? They would be to repent of your self-sufficiency, your earning, right? Because it's our default mode. We all try to earn our way with God. Even after we get saved, we still attempt to do that in some sense. Drop all that, man. Repent of your self-sufficiency and trying to earn your way. Seek God for mercy. Be like Daniel and his buddies. Confess your sins to Him. Ask Him to forgive and cleanse you with the blood of Jesus because that's why Jesus died and bled. Ask Him to save you. If you earnestly come to Him with these petitions, He will surely grant them. As it is written in Isaiah 55, 6-7, Seek the Lord while you can find Him. Call on Him now while He is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. That's repentance. Let them turn to the Lord that He may have mercy on them. And he says, yes, turn to our God for He will forgive generously. That's what you must do. For those of us who did this last week or 
five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago or however long. Rejoice in these gifts. Rejoice in the kingdom. Rejoice in in the prediction and the end of all earthly kingdoms and the coming of the kingdom of Jesus. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in all of it. That's why we come together every Sunday is to rejoice and to worship him because of what he's done for us. I hope you've enjoyed dreams, death, and deliverance in Daniel 2. I have. It's been good. It's been good to learn new things. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will begin to examine or study, exposit chapter 3. And I, I just encourage you, you don't want to miss it because things are about to really heat up in Babylon. I'm just wondering if anyone got the pun. The fiery furnace. I had planned that thing all week, and it's like, I just didn't even, nobody flinched.